You're listening to Tech Tank, a bi-weekly podcast from the Brookings Institution, exploring the most consequential technology issues of our time. From racial bias and algorithms to the future of work, Tech Tank takes big ideas and makes them accessible. Thanks for joining our Brookings Tech Tank podcast. I'm Daryl West, Senior Fellow in the Center for Technology Innovation at the Brookings Institution. The issue of protecting children online is a hot topic these days. Everyone recognizes the dangers of an online world. There are predators who take advantage of kids and people who exploit the openness of current platforms for their own purposes. The whole subject raises a number of questions regarding ways to protect children and how to build a more responsible ecosystem. To help us understand this subject, we're delighted to have two distinguished experts. Scott Brennan is the head of online expression policy at the Center on Technology Policy at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. He leads the center's work on online expression, misinformation, and political advertising. Matt Peralt is the director of the Center on Technology Policy at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. He is a professor of the practice in the university's School of Information and Library Science. He covers a number of different technology policy issues. And together, they are co-authors of a new report entitled Keeping Kids Safe Online, How Should Policymakers Approach Age Verification? And it is a terrific report, and I highly recommend it. So Scott and Matt, welcome to our Brookings Tech Tank podcast. Thanks so much. It's a pleasure to be on. Yeah, thanks, Daryl. Really appreciate it. So I'd like to start with Scott. So everyone is worried about children's safety online. What do you see as the greatest risk facing kids today? Yeah, so, you know, you're right to point out that, you know, protecting children online has become one of the biggest topics in tech policy. And, and you know, you're right to start with this question of, of well, what, what exactly is the risk that they're most concerned about? And, you know, many sort of use the, the shorthand of the four C's content, contact, conduct, and contract risks. Uh, this is a framework that I, I think came originally from the EU, maybe with Sonia Levinson. And, and uh, these are the, the big four category, four big categories of different types of risks. And then there are a series of different harms that can kind of come out of any of these, kind of chief among them is, you know, mental health sort of harms. But I think the, the, the point is here that, you know, within this universe of risks, you know, different groups or constituencies, you know, focus on on different ones, right? In the U.S., the maybe the right has been a little bit more focused on things like content risks, especially related to you know adult or pornographic content, and the left has maybe focused a little bit more on the sort of mental health side. Um, but but you know, really, you know, with all this diversity in the in in the risks that people are, are concerned about. Um, you know, it really sort of explains why so many policymakers from both parties are now pursuing regulatory change to protect children online. And, you know, any action that the government is going to take, you know, they, you, know you, you first have to determine who is and who is not a child, which brings us to this question of, of, of age assurance or age verification, which is, you know, what we focus kind of kind of more more narrowly on in the report. So I'd like to bring Matt into the conversation. What things worry you about the online safety of children? 
So I think Scott really articulated it quite well. And I guess I should say for this, for for this question, I'm sort of just speculating as a, um, not, not as a researcher, but more, I guess, just as a parent or someone who is generally concerned about kids' safety, because what the way that Scott described it is exactly right in terms of the research question that we were looking at. We were sort of taking it as a given that parents want to ensure that their kids have good experiences online. And good can mean um, that they're insulated from some of the worst things that happen online, from grooming type behavior or sexual predation, but also just might mean that they have generally a healthy relationship to their devices. They understand boundaries. They understand how to get the most out of the devices and um, avoid some of the worst use cases. Um, but that wasn't really the focus of the report. The, the focus of the report was like, let's just take as a given that policymakers have under and parents and, um, and citizens have understandable concerns about how kids experience the online world. Um, the first step in trying to take, in trying to address that concern is trying to identify who kids are. How do we, how are we able to protect kids if we don't know who they are? And so that was really the focus of what we studied in this report. So in your report, the two of you highlight the issue of age verification, saying that a part of online safety for children depends on how we verify people's age. So Scott, what are the current approaches to age verification and what are the problems with those approaches? Yeah, so, you know, there's a, there's a lot of different uh, technical ways, uh, techniques of trying to either verify or estimate the age of your users. We in the paper try to corral them into four big buckets, uh, which we identify as uh, self-declaration. This is probably the most common one or often called the age gating. Basically, we're just users input their birth date or their, their age um, in, in, in order to, to, to access content. Second, um, we call user submitted hard identifiers or, you know, more, you know, you may have seen as a uh, you know, requirement to upload your driver's license uh, or your passport. Um, third, uh, third party attestation. So there are there are systems that allow you to use like a credit card, for example, to verify your age. And then finally, inferential age assurance. And so there's ways that platforms or third parties uh, basically can try to, you know, uh, infer the age of users without without directly asking them. So whether that's AI based inference systems kind of looking across the different content that users post um, or or things like, uh, um, you know, a, uh, facial recognition systems that try to try, try to estimate the age of users. Now, the, the question of, of what are the limitations of each one is, is, a, is a really big one. And, you know, w without going kind of, you know, down the line of, of each technique, I think the, the point in the paper is to say that, you know, there are no sort of silver bullets here. There's no perfect solution. It, it's not that there are big problems, but rather that whatever of these techniques that, that a platform uses, there are trade-offs. So, you know, some of these techniques might be more accurate, you know, uploading, uh, you know, a hard identifier might be more accurate, but there's a cost of, of, uh, of privacy, right. Or, or of data security, right. Like if you or if you're now asking platforms to collect, uh, pictures of driver's license or passports, they now have to, to collect and store and process really sensitive data, uh, which of course, you know, not, not only raises privacy issues, but concerns, but, but, um, 
um, but but data security as well. Um, or you know, or for example, um, you know, you know, there there are equity concerns about uploading, you know, you know, uploading uh, government IDs. Right, some people have more or less access to to government IDs, um, and so the 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 sort of framing of the paper is is not that there are you know li- you know problems necessarily with any with any approach, but rather that however we choose to to verify a user's age there's going to be a sort of balancing of trade-offs and regulators need to recognize this and do a better job of sort of helping platforms, you know, be able to, to smartly do that, that work of, of, of balancing, um, you know, these different trade-offs. So Matt, you make a number of recommendations in your paper. There probably are a dozen or more, and I'm not going to ask you to go through each and every one of them, but what do you think are the most important things we can do right now? Well, so we we had recommendations in three categories, um, balance, specificity, and understanding. So balance is just as Scott just described it, um, trying to encourage policymakers to think about how to balance the various different trade-offs that are inherent in this process. So that might mean um, conducting a cost-benefit analysis of potential legislation to understand really literally what are the costs and what are the benefits, Um, looking at things like tax breaks for small companies that use trusted assurance vendors. Um, And then specificity is to provide enough detail so that companies understand their obligations and best practices and users understand how they will be treated online. So being sufficiently specific so as to remove some amount of uncertainty so that companies and users sort of understand the rules of the road, um, we think is important. And one example of that would be um, to encourage the FTC to expand its guidance on COPPA compliance. That's currently just public facing um, Q&A uh, at, uh, on the FTC website. Um, Another example of adding more specificity specificity would be something like having a government agency like NIST provide guidance on the risks of various different online features to add more detail and granularity for companies that are trying to make determinations about the kind of safety assurance they provide based on risk profiles, um, giving them guidance on what those those risk, risk profiles actually are. Um, the third category understanding is to develop a deeper understanding of of age assurance methods and technologies and their impacts. So doing things, for instance, like assessing various different state models for conducting age assurance. Right now, we have a proliferation of of tech policy at the state level. Daryl, I know that's something that you've looked closely at. um, And it's something that we've been really um, encouraged to see, I would say, that while the federal government has not been able to move forward with significant tech reform, states have been experimenting. Um, and we think that experimentation overall is a positive thing, but it's important to try to evaluate the impact of various different approaches at the state level and understand what works and what doesn't. Um, or going back to Scott's previous framing, what are the trade-offs inherent in different approaches so that we can make assessments going forward about which trade-offs we're comfortable with? So Scott, in the paper, you mentioned the notion of a risk-based uh, approach to age assurance. Could you Tell us a little bit about that, just in terms of what it means, what it involves, and how that would take place. Sure. Yeah. So this this uh, I, I guess most simply is just the idea that um, you know you give the you give platforms the latitude to choose different assurance techniques 
that fit the risk profile of of the of the survey. And so, um, if you are um, you know offering a, a, a service that has that you know a product that or a feature that has uh, presents a great deal of risk to children, you use a more t- a technique, a verification technology that that uh, is you know offers like a, a, a little bit higher sort of uh, accuracy and might sort of also require more data collection, right? Or, or um, you know, but for products or features that maybe have sort of a lower risk profile, you can, you know, you can maybe you just use age gating, right? Just like ask people to, to input their birthday. Now, th- this, this idea, you know, is, has really been embraced by the EU and the UK and, and, in, in um, in in regulation recent regulation and also has has sort of popped up in in uh, was sort of the, the the cornerstone of the the California's big child safety bill uh, from last year the age appropriate design act um, and you know you know and and I think just to sort of echo what Matt said just a minute ago you know is you know on the whole I think we think this is a really promising idea. Um, but also I think we need to recognize that like it, it can be sort of hard for a company to do that determination of, of actually assess what is, what is the real risk of, of, a, of a particular product or, or feature. And so this is why we, we include that recommendation about, um, you know, a government agency like, or government body like NIST, um, you know, offering a resource that helps sort of pull together all of, you know, the existing sort of understanding of the different risk profiles of different different products and features. Yeah, I, th- I think there is this perception that you can just sort of have it all, that of course child safety is really important. And of course we should do obvious things to move forward in this area to protect kids. And the only barrier would be intransigent companies or um, lawmakers that are un- unable to pass laws. And I think our in the course of doing the research for the topic, it really felt to us like the challenges are more inherent in the underlying policy issue than attributable to blame within one component of the ecosystem. And that is just that that trying to do more in this area in any particular, to optimize for any one particular criteria like accuracy, for instance, results in all these downside effects that um, that I think really present real challenges. And so I think the, the, the tendency with things like, you know, the risk-based approach, which we are generally supportive of, I, I think there's sort of an underlying assumption that like, we'll just leave it to, um, to other people in the ecosystem to figure out exactly how to make this happen in practice. And our push is to try to provide a little bit more specificity to actually give guidance to companies um, about how to do that in practice, because it's very difficult to do without doing it in a way that would raise various different concerns. Uh, so, uh, Scott, one of the things you mentioned in the paper is developing a voluntary certification program for third-party age assurance vendors. So, how would that operate, and why should that be a voluntary as opposed to a required program? Sure. Yeah. Uh, so. Um, you know, we imagine this, uh, well, I guess I'll, I'll start sort of like lay out what this might look like. Um, you know, I, you know, we suggest it's the FTC, you know, we could imagine maybe other sort of government bodies sort of, t- you know, uh, leading this as well. But the idea is to develop a series of, of, um, 
of sort of best practices and guidelines that a third party vendor needs to, you know, follows um, uh, in order to gain like a certification from from uh, from the government. In uh, that way that, you know, platforms or companies that are looking to use vendors can be confident that these third parties are, um, you know, you know, d d doing a good job, right? Like that, that they're, that they're protecting user data, that they're, that they're um, using techniques that are accurate, right? Like, I think there's this big problem now where, um, so for example, like in the, uh, the uh, Arkansas uh, pa passed a bill that, that uh, ma mandates age verification and they mandate that, that the platforms use third-party vendors. The problem is, right, the, if no way of knowing, like if those vendors are doing what they say they're doing, or if they're, you know, if if they're being uh, good good stewards of user data, and so this is one one solution to to in, to, to to ensure that you know that that um, the you know the third parties are are, uh, are are doing what they say they are. Now the the question of why it should be voluntary or compulsory, you know, to be honest, we went back and forth on this one. I think. Um, you know, I, I think that the 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 belief is that um, you know even just making it voluntary and just creating the 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 the, the you know the the, the certification itself um, will sort of incentivize companies to participate, uh, like we see in in some other uh, in, in some other sort of these sort of certification programs, and so it, it, it's not necessary to make it mandatory, uh, which would probably raise, um, you know, the possibility at least of other legal challenges. Uh, so Matt, you mentioned the notion of policy sandboxes as a way to experiment with different approaches, gather some data and try and figure out uh, what uh, works. Uh, what was the rationale behind that suggestion and how do you think that would operate? So in some ways, policy sandboxes, I think, are the policy encapsulation of the underlying thesis of this, which is um, there, there are significant trade-offs. We don't know as much about how those significant trade-offs will play out in practice as we might like. And therefore, it, it, it probably is not advisable to just assume we know the right answer here and to legislate it and to have that law be on the books indefinitely. Um, because it's conceivable that our assessment of what's going to be good or bad about a particular regime may not actually play out to be consistent with, with, um, with the reality of that regime. And so the idea of a sandbox is that you trial... A, an approach for a period of time, and you give companies an opportunity to experiment with different approaches during that period of time, so long as they're consistent with the terms of the sandbox. Um, and then at, at the idea, in our view, is that at some point toward the end of that experimentation period, um, you are assessing the performance of the sandbox itself. So you're actually trying to evaluate whether it works in practice. Traditionally, sandboxes are um, associated with regulatory relief. So they are a zone where companies can experiment without, um, without the same legal regime in place that would be in place otherwise. So for example, in fintech, um, companies have been able to experiment with fintech pro uh, products without traditional financial services regulation being in place to um, govern uh, their conduct. Our, our view of sandboxes is that that is somewhat incomplete. We're not rooting for a world where there's just no regulation. And in fact, we would like to see sandbox type models be used as a way to encourage further experimentation, not just on the product innovation side, but also on the policy innovation side. And 
age assurances is, is an area that just seems ripe for that kind of experimentation. Because again, I think we don't, we don't know as much as we think we do about um, how these various different methods will play out in practice. And um, our research, I think, suggested that there are real downsides potentially to certain approaches and that we would do well to understand more about them before we legislate them into law indefinitely. So, Scott, uh, what do you see as the trade-offs in various kinds of age assurance systems? I mean, in the paper, you mentioned factors such as equity, accessibility, privacy, security, and accountability, among others. How should we think about those kinds of trade-offs? Yeah, you know, I, th- I think the, the, the point of the paper is to identify, like, the range of different factors that policymakers should consider, rather than necessarily, like, us saying, you know, one of these, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know is, is more important than the other. But uh, certainly the big, the big ones, you know, that, that uh, seem to, com- you know, re- re- really are, are kind of most obvious are, you know, accuracy, right? Like different methods are going to be more accurate in, in verifying the age of a user, but also privacy, right? Like in there, there seems to be, you know, in, in, for most of the actual age verification approaches, you know, a, a balance, right? Between the, you know, the more accurate is the, 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 the more sort of sensitive data that needs to be collected. Um, you know, you, you mentioned equity. This, this is also an, another, you know, uh, you know, c- central trade-off where, you know, different people have different access to things like government IDs, but also different people have different risks of supplying sensitive or personal data to a platform or to a third party. Um, and and something that that certainly reg- regulators need to be very mindful of is the differential impact um, uh, that, that their policies will have on on, on groups. Uh, and I'll, I'll just point out a couple of other ones. You know, there, there's we haven't really mentioned talk, talked at all about the sort of like legal landscape here. And I'm not a I'm not a lawyer. Uh, and, and so, uh, uh, you know, but, but um, you know, there, there's certainly ongoing debates about the legality of, of mandated age verification, uh, uh, you know, for, for platforms and uh, something, again, like another trade-off that, that uh, regulators need to be really mindful of is how to sort of navigate, you know, First Amendment uh, uh, protections as it concerns, you know, uh, uh, anonymous speech online, um, uh, and and then uh, the the last one I'll say without going through all these is is just simple simply usability that um, I think we have to be really you know uh, mindful of how different age verification or age assurance requirements sort of just impact the user experience of a product. I mean you know we we see with GDPR um, you know for 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 the good that it does you know it's kind of annoying right to like have to click through um, you know yes no boxes for nearly every web website that you visit. You know, maybe that sort of is like a little less important than these big questions about privacy or equity, but something that I think also needs needs to be considered. So, Matt, we know that other countries such as the United Kingdom, uh, Australia and the European Union are looking at these issues. What are their regulatory approaches and what can the United States policymakers learn from what is happening internationally? This was one of the most fun and interesting components of the research for this paper. We, we spoke, um, to, uh, to several international regulators about how they're approaching this issue. And one thing that's apparent, um, about, uh, about how other regulators approach it is that there really is, I think, a more open, less punitive 
dialogue between companies and regulators that our sense is likely results in stronger protections for kids, which is really the, the ultimate goal. Um, and that, that's because I think the, those regulatory regimes tend to not be focused on um, simply on compliance, like establishing a mandate, then um, investigating to see what companies violated that mandate, and then, and then um, initiating lawsuit to hold them accountable for violating that, that mandate. And instead is more of kind of an ongoing dialogue around how different methods um, uh, work in practice. Um, what I think the focus is often on what regulators can learn about new and evolving products on the tech side, as well as what companies can learn about how regulators are seeing different issues unfold. And so the co-regulatory model that is prevalent in the UK, for instance, I think has um, would have a lot of benefits if if we were incorporating elements of it here. Um, and one of them actually is that it actually results in regulation that be, I think because um, it is somewhat less um, draconian, it makes, it lowers the stakes for actually engaging in regulatory reform. And that putting a regulatory framework in place that almost necessitates dialogue between companies and, um, and government I think it has just a long run positive iterative effect on the kind of public policy that governs our tech products because regulators are constantly learning new things and learning new things about how to improve the regulatory regime. And simultaneously, companies are, are, are learning about, um, about how, to, how to develop products that are respectful of regulators' perspectives on different issues. So those are important points, and I think you're exactly right. Uh, you know, many countries around the world are trying to figure out exactly how to handle these types of issues. The other place where action is taking a place, and Scott, I'll direct this question to you, is, you know, not just at the U.S. national level, but in the American states. So, Scott, what are the various states doing on age assurance and children's safety issues in general? Yeah. So this is a this is a big question. Um, so, you know, we're, we're, you know, I think Matt kind of mentioned a, a bit ago that, you know, we're really seeing this sort of uh, experimentation happening uh, by the states, trying out kind of different, different ideas here. Um, and, and um, so I can just sort of um, highlight a couple of the big, of the big pieces of, of legislation that, that we've seen recently. So, you know, last year, California passed the Age Appropriate Design Act, which was a, which is directly modeled on um, a UK bill, the Age Appropriate Design Code. Um, and, you know, actually, it's, 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 it's remains sort of a, a unique approach uh, in the States um, that, is all about sort of safety by design, um, and and uh, and and requiring uh, platforms to um, uh, complete uh, impact assessments, uh, risk assessments of their of their products to to understand the different risks that that they may pose to children. Uh, as I said, like you know, there have been efforts to sort of extend this model to other states. So far, they have not passed. Um, but instead, we've seen um, this other sort of approach, which um, so some have sort of characterized more as, as, you know, less as a sort of safety by design approach and more as a sort of like parental rights approach, uh, where the focus has been on ensuring, you know, 
that parents have uh, the have, have have the ability to limit their children uh, from from using social media or that require parents to to give give consent for their children to use social media. So I think most famously, you know, Utah passed a couple of bills. Uh, I just want to say this was around March um, that required parental consent uh, for for minors to use social media, but it also did all, all these other things. It, it prohibited uh, minors from using social media from the hours of, I, I think it was something like 10 to 6 a.m., 10 p.m. to 6 a.m. Um, but it also, you know, allows parents to, or, or you know, to 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 access their, you know, minors' accounts to see their um, to to see their activity, to see the messages that they share. Um, and and uh, Arkansas sort of uh, also uh, passed a, a bill that sim- does a similar thing of requiring parental consent. And then I think the other kind of big category that we've seen is, uh, is a con- certainly as it re- concerns age verification, is uh, Louisiana passed um, a, a bill that requires uh, age verification for um, uh, to, for, for, to view uh, adult or pornographic content. And that is a bill that has also been um, uh, ad- adopted in, in a handful of other states as, as well. That's sort of a broadly the sort the sort of landscape that we that we've seen at, at the state level. And Matt, uh, what are you seeing at the state level that strikes you either as novel or possibly effective? That's such a good question, and <clears throat> I'm not sure exactly. I'm not sure the best way to answer it. So. We, we recommend a risk-based approach that's consistent with the age-appropriate design code um, in California. <clears throat> um, that doesn't mean we think that, that that's a perfect, that the California law is a perfect approach. As Scott said, legality is a big question for many of these different models. And um, there's active litigation in California challenging the legality of their, uh, of their law. <clears throat> so I think there's, you know, there are important questions to resolve. Um, I think, I think the main, the, the, the main thought here is that there were several recommendations in our report that were really challenging to come up with. I mean, sitting in policymakers' shoes, which is what we were trying to do, and think about what options might be desirable was just incredibly challenging. Um, it, it did not leave us, I would say, um, it, it left us with a lot of empathy, I think, for the position that policymakers are in of trying to address this really important issue and having um, options that really, you know, each one has significant costs associated with it. That's just is a very challenging position to be in. One recommendation that was on the easier side was um, essentially, Daryl, to institutionalize your question, which is what what models work well and what ones and what models don't. As, as I said before, um, it would be useful in our view to do an assessment. Probably it would make sense to do that at the federal level to really evaluate the costs and benefits of, of the various different um, implementations of age assurance at the state level, um, both to give us feedback for states that have existing laws in place so that they can change those laws if it turns out that costs outweigh benefits in important ways. Um, and then also to give guidance on other states um, and maybe even the federal government or other countries about what the optimal approach might be. It sort of is appalling, I think, that we have this much experimentation at the state level, but we don't really, we haven't really institutionalized processes to learn um, about about how that experimentation is actually playing out in practice. So I think it's very hard to, because we don't have that at this point, I think it's hard to kind of answer in a definitive way, here's the model that actually works best. We, that's data that we need to see. 
No, I love that uh, recommendation. I think that's actually relevant for a number of different uh, tech policy areas. We need better data. We need uh, researcher access to that kind of information. And then we need solid research that can help us answer these questions. So I want to thank Scott and Matt for sharing their thoughts with us. Uh, their report is entitled Keeping Kids Safe Online. How Should Policymakers Approach Age Verification? At Brookings, we write regularly about these issues, and you can find more information at brookings.edu. So thank you very much for tuning in. It was a pleasure, Daryl. Thanks so much. Thank you, really. Thank you for listening to Tech Tank, a series of roundtable discussions and interviews with technology experts and policymakers. For more conversations like this, subscribe to the podcast and sign up to receive the Tech Tank newsletter for more research and analysis from the Center for Technology Innovation at Brookings. Thank you.